I wanted you to take a look at that book in your lap. Okay, hopefully you have one. Maybe it's on your phone. Maybe it's on an iPad, whatever. But it's a what? What do you call it? This is a Bible. This is your light. This is what shows you the way. This is your food that feeds your soul, that, that causes you to become more like Jesus Christ. It's your instruction that guides you and answers your questions Monday through Friday. In fact, today will help you to guide you as to what you have in front of you. And it's actually your way to fulfill your greatest purpose in life, which is to know God, to love Him. Salvation is defined by knowing Jesus Christ. Well, we know that through the vehicle of His Word. And this is the way that we get to know Him intimately as understanding His truth. It's the only book that comes from God. It's the only path to intimacy with God. This book is actually the only book that will keep you pure as well as happy. Uh, it's the only book that will guide you into God's will and continue to cause you to be right in the path that God wants you to be. It's the only book that will build you up and grow you deep and cause you to not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And it's the only book that allows you to know truth. We're living in a day of massive deception. And yet, because we have this book, we know the truth. Amen? We do know what the truth is. We, we know not only the truth, but we can embrace reality. Uh, we're being told and sold a, a fantasy, and actually this book helps us to see things in realism and understand the truth of them, and this book actually helps us to see the future, to know what's coming, and we look at present events and we go, this could turn into this kind of future, so this is the book. It's typically this book is what keeps you from sin, but it's also sin that keeps you from this book, right? So... What's going to take for you to be more in the Word this year and the beginning of next year than ever before? What's it going to take? Make no mistake, only those who are in this book are actually intimate with Christ. And it's true, if, if this is your only experience in the Word of God every week, you're really not treating Christ as your first love. That's the importance of this book. This book is what we treasure. You say, how can I say that? Well, the Bible is called the Word of God, and Jesus is called the Word of God. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and the Bible was given by the Holy Spirit. Both are perfect. Both are without error in the original. Both have a unique authority. Both the Bible and Jesus are rejected by men. Both the Bible and Jesus make God known, and both Jesus and the Bible are judges of mankind. That's the book that you have in your lap. Some people are craving for supernatural things. Well, listen, this, friends, this book, as it interacts with your life, is supernatural. This is the book that God uses to bring people to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Not songs, the book, this book, the Bible. This is the book that causes you to become more like Jesus Christ. This is the book that will bring you to be glorified with Jesus Christ. This is the book. And because it's the word of God, if Jesus were here in the physical, this is what he would say. He would say the verses of the Bible. He would teach you the truth of God's word. He would not impress you with new things. It would be a reflection of what he's already revealed in the word of God. This book. Interesting enough, throughout history, God's people, like us, have subtly drifted from God's word. And then God in his grace suddenly reveals God's word. Well, that's happened throughout history, and in the time of Christ, that's exactly what's going on. The, the people of Israel have moved away from God's truth, 
and they have embraced tradition, and they've lost the truth of the Bible. So much so, when people heard Jesus be critical of tradition and not practice all their traditions, then they thought that he was violating the truth. They would accuse him of rejecting God's word when actually he was only rejecting their man-made traditions. Are you tracking with me? And that's where we find ourselves. Let me help you set the stage before we open up God's word here. In the first century, those who read and interpreted and applied the word of God in the synagogues were the scribes. They were the scribes, the leaders of the religious elite. And these Jewish people who would come to these scribes were reared in their understanding of their faith in the synagogues. And they attempted temple worship, but they were learned uh, in the Old Testament truths by these men who were steeped in tradition over truth. So they got more tradition than they got actually God's word from these leaders. The role of the average layperson was not to debate them. Listen, the average Jew in the first century didn't have the Old Testament. They didn't have a copy. Those were all in the synagogues. Those were all at the temple. They maybe had a verse or a passage or a segment. They never had the whole, so they were very dependent upon their spiritual leaders, and their spiritual leaders were teaching them tradition, not the truth. Are you tracking with me? Tradition was all the applications of the truth, but not the truth itself. So when Jesus arrived, he wants to set the record straight. He didn't come to throw out the law and the prophets, and the law and the prophets refers to the Old Testament, but he came to fulfill them. After all, the Old Testament scriptures are the very words of God, and Jesus is God, and therefore they're his words. He's not going to reject his own words, and so therefore he is going to go after this faulty interpretation and mega-specific applications called the oral tradition. Now, some of you might be confused, so let me help you understand the mega applications of scripture that they were following okay let me give you an example the law the bible taught that we should rest on the sabbath in the old testament are you tracking with me not a not a surprise to most of you in the room rest and they would say that meant no work on the sabbath and then godly men began to come up with categories as to what does no work mean so this is just one truth that they're going after, and they go, what does that mean? Well, one of the categories, major categories they came up with was don't carry a burden. See, if you're going to rest on the Sabbath, that means you're not going to carry a burden. Then they spent hundreds of years coming up with laws, traditions, oral tradition, that would say, what does it mean to not carry a burden? So let me give you some examples of that. Say, Stay with me. Not carrying a burden would mean, can a guy pick up a lamp in his house and put it in another place? A little oil lamp, can he move it from one place to the other? Because you're carrying a burden by moving the lamp, right? Or a God-fearing woman, she might wear a brooch, that's carrying a burden. Or she would wear a wig on her head, that's carrying a burden. Or a tailor who's very committed to his sewing just forgot and walked out of the house with a needle stuck in his robe. That would be carrying a burden. Are you tracking with me on this? I'm not making this up. They came up with, can a man go out on Sabbath if he's supposed to rest, not work on the Sabbath, not carry a burden with artificial teeth or with an artificial limb? He can't go out with that. He's got to go out without his limb on the Sabbath to please God. Can he pick up his kid? on the Sabbath and hold his child. 
that would be carrying a, a burden. Some of your parents going, yeah, that's a burden. All right. <laughs> to them, that was the essence of religion. Now, I'm just giving you just a slight taste of the hundreds of things that they were to follow to be obedient to God that God never intended. God did not intend that you couldn't pick up your kid on the Sabbath even though you're supposed to rest. He never intended that. And they were also inventive of massive laws about, now these are major categories, like lifting burdens, okay? Writing, you could write, couldn't write, the pen, all kinds of stuff. Healing, walking, speaking, massive categories on what you could say and not say on the Sabbath so you were resting, eating, and more. All of this came from rest on the Sabbath. They went to town with their oral tradition and many times violated the truth of Scripture by their traditions. Are you tracking with me? That's what Jesus is going after. The scribes, sometimes called rabbis, they're the ones that invented all these laws. And the Pharisees, those who called themselves the separate ones, that's what it means, separate ones, are the ones who tried to live all these laws. Now, I want you to know this because I find it fascinating, all right? All this oral tradition was then written down, because it was oral, they all shared it, you know, rabbi to rabbi, rabbi for hundreds of years, but then they finally wrote it down about 200, 200, 300 years after Christ, and it was the Mishnah, and guess how many pages long it was? Just the rules, 800 pages of rules, written in tiny little Hebrew, okay? 800 pages. Then, have you heard of the word Talmud? The Talmud, that's the commentaries, 12 of them, that explained the 800-page Mishnah, and they're all under. Can you imagine being under the burden of that kind of religion? Are you tracking with me? There's actually 613 commandments in the New Testament, and that's what we're supposed to obey, not these thousands and thousands of little nuanced things. It misses the point. Now, let's make sure we're clear so you don't misunderstand your reading of the Scripture later. As the first century progressed, the Jews would actually call and refer to the law four different ways. When they said law, sometimes it meant the Ten Commandments. That was number one usage. Number two usage was the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. That was the law. The third usage of the law was they called it the law and the prophets, and that refers to the entire Old Testament. The entire Old Testament. The law and the prophets, they summarized that with that's the entire Old Testament. The fourth way they used the word law was oral tradition. So they're attacking Jesus, and sometimes they'll say, you violate the law. What they mean is the oral tradition. Are you tracking with me? Did Jesus ever, ever once violate the truth of God's word? Yes or no? No, never, not once. But he did violate the oral tradition because it wasn't the Bible and sometimes contrary to the Bible. He would heal on the Sabbath. They freaked out over that. His disciples, though the law actually told them that they could pick grain, they were freaking out over that. He would do things that violated the oral tradition. And it really, really bugged them. Now Jesus and later Paul utterly condemned the oral tradition. And Christ is trying to turn people back to the word of God and reject the oral tradition so they can come to the gospel. They can come to an understanding of who God is. They can pray accurately all because they understand the truth of God's word. Are you tracking? That's where they're at. And Christ is going to attempt now in the Sermon on the Mount to expose the difference, get this down, God's truth, man's tradition. 
and the rest of Matthew chapter 5 is going to sing that song. He's going to go after man's tradition and he's going to expose God's truth. And he's going to do it in the most incredible, profound, only Jesus could pull this off kind of way. So prior to the Sermon on the Mount, the scribes were accusing Jesus of abolishing the law, when in reality Jesus is just pointing people to God's revealed word in the Bible, and he's telling them to reject man's application of the word as the oral tradition, extra rules, legalism, etc. The scribes accused him of unfaithfulness to the scripture. He wasn't being unfaithful to the scripture. He was being unfaithful to man's tradition, and he's trying to uphold God's truth. Are, are you with me? Are you getting it? I want you to make sure you understand that so you can understand these verses now in verse 17 through 20 of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is going to say the introduction to this whole rest of chapter 5. This is the introduction that sets the stage for our understanding of the rest of chapter 5, and I want you to read it aloud with me from your Bibles or your outline so we can read it together, starting in verse 17 through verse 20 out loud. Everyone together, here we go. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven." But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This passage is powerful. It's going to teach you to reverence God's word, to love it, to treasure it, to cling to it. It's going to really warn you and challenge you to make sure you interpret the Bible correctly And again, something we treasure at FBC, we want the author's intended message, the one meaning of every text and every verse of the Bible. And then it'll scare you a little bit because you won't want to add anything and you won't want to take anything away or malign it from the Scripture. And there are four major points that Jesus hits in verses 17 to 20, and they just come out of each one of the verses, all right? So stay with me. Point number one in your outline, the sufficiency of Christ and His Word, the sufficiency of of Christ and his word. Verse 17 says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Okay, I didn't come to reject the Old Testament. I did not come to abolish, but to what? Fulfill. Now, he's not wanting to do away with the Old Testament uh, or anything else uh, that we find in God's word. He does not want to abolish the Bible, the law and the prophets. Abolish there means to alter to abrogate, to replace God's words. Jesus didn't come to do that. In fact, abolish has to do with tearing down a house. Jesus was not coming to tear down the Old Testament. Now, you New Testament Christians, the Old Testament is God's word, okay? And I know it's crispy there in your Bible, but understand it's still God's living and active word, and Christ did not come to dismantle it. He was neither giving a new law or actually modifying the old, but rather explaining the significance of the Mosaic law, its moral content, and the rest of the Old Testament. He's very clear about that. Look at verse 17. The law and the prophets. That's the way that they would describe the entire Old Testament. He says, I'm not, I'm not 
doing away with the Old Testament here. But he is doing away with the rabbinic interpretations of it and the applications that had been formulated over two to three hundred years by the rabbis and the scribes. Christ did not come to break with, destroy, or demolish the Old Testament, but he came to fulfill. You see that there? And fulfill, it's a very personal term. It's actually talking about fulfilling a prophecy. And Christ is actually telling his listeners here that he, Christ, is the fulfillment. When you read the word, it's supposed to lead you to whom? Christ. It's supposed to direct you to your need of the gospel and to turn to Christ. He's the fulfillment of the moral law. He kept it perfectly. He fulfilled the ceremonial law by being the embodiment of everything the law's types and symbols pointed to. He fulfilled the judicial law, the personification of God's perfect justice is there. He is all we need. Amen? Amen. He's all we need, and he's found in and through the Scripture. That's that book that you have, that you treasure, that's more than just a Sunday book. It's your lifeline. The enemy wants to get you off track. And he's gotten church after church and Christian after Christian off track with the Bible. And one of the enemy's successful weapons is to get you to think that the Bible is not sufficient. So let me test you three different ways. Answer these questions. Is the Bible, number one, uh, sufficient for the church's evangelistic task? Yes or no? Yes. But many churches don't think so. So what do they do? They do signs and wonders. Okay, got to do extra things, supernatural, instead of this book, which is supernatural. They, they abandon biblical teaching. They have sociological techniques, and they're really, really big today on massive ear-tickling, making you feel good, and entertaining you. Interesting enough, when you try to do sacred work in a secular way, you get secular fruit. It may result in a large pond. In my circles, we call that a large pond. It's a big church but it's only one inch deep, and it's very unstable. That's what it produces. Hey, second question. Is the Bible sufficient for growth in Christ and godliness? Yes. Many churches don't believe it, so they have self-help programs. They recommend psychology and man-centered counseling. They listen to entertaining or critical blogs and even focus on the latest theological controversy week in and week out instead of dependently living on the Spirit of God, by the Word of God, for the glory of God. So, third question. Is the Bible sufficient for making an impact in society? Yes or no? Many churches don't think so, so what do they do? They, they don't teach the Bible, but they put their effort into political action, getting certain people elected, lobbying for certain things. Now, some of those efforts have value, but understand, that is not God's way of transforming people or society. Amen? It is through the gospel. Christians stand firm on the foundation of God's word and expect God to bless it in transforming people to become submissive to him through the good news of Jesus Christ. That's point number one, the sufficiency of scripture. Number two, the inspiration of Christ and his word. The inspiration, verse 18, for I truly say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of the word of God shall pass from the law until it is accomplished. He's telling you that it is the inspired word of God. His emphasis on inspiration of the all of scripture, he's affirming the utter inerrancy of the entire Old Testament as the word of God down to the last vowel 
and smallest Hebrew and Greek letter. He wants you to know that even the nuance in the original is God's word. Now, did men write it or did God write the Old and New Testament? Who, what's the answer? Yes. 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 I can't explain that, but that's inspiration. It wasn't that they wrote it and then God inspired it. It was like, no, it's all God and it's all man, and that's the book you have. It is a supernatural book. And friends, the New Testament... It's not supplanting the old. It's not abrogating the old. It actually is fulfilling the old and explaining the Old Testament. Our whole Bible has continuity. And the example, even the ceremonial requirements of the Mosaic Law and the temple worship, etc., were all fulfilled in Christ and are no longer observed by Christians because of that. Not one tiny word is thereby erased or neglected. Even a nuance, a letter in the original is not inspired. It is inspired. The underlying truths of these Old Testament scriptures remain. In fact, the mysteries behind them are now revealed in the brighter light of the gospel. Verse 18, they've not passed away. They've not failed. They've not dropped from the word of God. To set aside any of the scripture was never the agenda of Jesus Christ, ever. And he shocks the listening crowd. He really shocks them with these words in verse 18. Look at verse 18. Not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law. Letter or stroke is sometimes jot and tittle in certain versions. It means really not one iota or one horn. Now, an iota was the smallest Greek letter and vowel. It sometimes even was located below another letter. It's just a very tiny marking. The horn refers to a tiny mark like a hook or a tail that distinguishes one letter from another. And I, I, I didn't want this on the screen. I want you to look up here. This is a Hebrew letter. This is a yod. Okay? See, see this word? You see it? Can you see it? Little tiny marking. That's a letter in the Hebrew Bible. Now look at how similar that letter is to this letter. Whoa! Just an extension of that one. And yet that's a different letter. And Jesus is saying the difference between those two, those are inspired. In fact, he's saying, look at the Daleth here, and that's another Hebrew letter. And you compare that Daleth to oh, the Resh. Oh my gosh, they're hard. That's like once, oh my, oh. I mean, you can hardly tell the difference. And yet what God is trying to tell you is that every single one, just that little marking is inspired by him. Many of you have written a zero or an O, and then you put one little mark on it, what's become a Q? And that's what he's saying. It's, it's inspired down to the little mark. That's what he's trying to tell you. That is, every word is inspired. Are you getting it? The word of God. Not the oral tradition. The word of God. Your enemy wants to turn your focus from the truth of God's word to tradition or anything else. Be careful that you and I don't spend more time with authors, bloggers, sermons than you do God's written word. Be careful. That's what happened to Israel. They began to spend more time with the oral tradition and what the rabbis said and not with the truth of God's word, and they lost the word of God. You and I face the same danger. Sometimes we define ourselves by freedoms. You know, we've got certain freedoms in Christ, gray areas, drinking, you know, dress, entertainment. There's some who are so hot about the latest theological controversy, they read everything, everything that's written except for the Bible. In context, if they just read the Bible, it would resolve it. 
They read everything but God's Word. Far too many of us, would you agree, are caught up sometimes in our friendships. That's how we define church. And our family over the Savior and His truth. Is that true? Sometimes we drift that way. Sometimes we do that. But it's God's Word which is inspired down to the last jot or tittle. Every word, every letter, every single word is God-breathed, sharper than a two-edged sword. And look at how Jesus begins verse 18. Look at the beginning of verse 18. For truly I say to you, truly is the Greek word amen, amen I'm saying to you, I'm telling you the truth. God is looking at each one of you in the eye and saying this is what I value, God's Word. That's what I value. Verse 18, look what he says, until heaven and earth pass away. This phrase is used 31 times in the Gospel of Matthew to say until the end of the age, meaning as long as this present world exists, God's word is going to endure. None of God's law is going to pass away. Now he doesn't make that promise about tradition, but truth. Not sermons, but scripture. Not blogs, but Bible. Took me a long time to match those up. So John 10, the scripture cannot be what? Broken. Jesus is affirming the trustworthiness and the reliabilityness of all the scriptures in the strongest possible language. Back then he's trying to turn the people from their commitment to tradition to the truth of God's word. And today the Lord's trying to move you this morning from anything less than the word of God. Anything less Yes, listen to sermons. Yes, read certain blogs. Yes, listen to music. Yes, read good books. But not more than the, what? The Bible, the Word. The Bible alone is God's inspired Word of God. It's what saved you, Romans 10. It's what sanctifies you, John 17. It's what will bring you to glory. Back then, Jesus even told the scribes and the Pharisees, he said, look, don't miss the point here. John 5, you diligently study the scripture because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, Jesus, yet you refuse to come to me to have light. The vehicle of God's word is to bring us to who? Christ. And as he continues to preach the Sermon on the Mount in coming weeks, and next week and following, you're going to see how the leadership moved away from truth to tradition, and it ruined them. It ruined them, and it condemned them. Don't you be ruined, all right? The enemy, using Gollum's word, is tricksy, okay? He is really, really subtle. And be careful, Christian. Remember the theme, one of the themes of the Reformation was what? Sola Scriptura. That means what in Latin? Scripture alone. The Bible alone. And practically it means whenever our beliefs and the Bible are in conflict, whenever our traditions come in conflict with the Scriptures, whenever our feelings or thoughts come in conflict with the Scripture, the Bible needs preeminence. It needs preeminence in our church. It needs preeminence in your schedule, in your thinking, in your behavior, in your life, and in your heart. Sola Scriptura. Number three, the authority of Christ and His Word. The authority of Christ and His Word. Not only do we need to believe the Bible and stand firm on our beliefs in the Scripture, but we also need to obey the Bible and live by it. That's the ultimate test of whether you actually see the Bible as your authority. Amen? It's when you live it out, when you obey it. Is the Bible truly your authority? 
Now, in verse 19, it's using a play on words. Jesus warned, verse 19, look at it, that any teacher who annuls even one of the least of the commandments will be least in the kingdom of God. On the contrary, whoever keeps and teaches the commandments will be great. Now, no one can really ever con you know, confront Jesus on a low view of Scripture. Are you with me on this? I mean, he is exalting the inspiration, the accuracy, and the authority of the Scriptures. Listen to what he says, verse 19. Look at it. Read it with me silently as I read aloud. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is somewhat of a controversial passage, so let me explain it to you, okay? And I, let me help you understand how I had to come to this. When you look at how Matthew uses least and great, you're going to find, uh, let me look at it here, in John chapter 11, verse 11, he talks about John the Baptist. He says, truly I say, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist yet, now listen, the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So he's talking about a believer there, correct? When you get to Matthew 13, he uses least and greater, and the least are actually the unsaved, and the greater are the saved. So what does he mean here? I think he means both. Now, stay with me really quick, please. You gotta, your oatmeal's got to work right now, okay? So stay in your brain here. What's he say in verse 19? He says, whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments. So you're going to reject one of the commandments of God. It depends on what commandment it is, depending the consequences you suffer. Are you tracking with me? Like, if I was to teach you, which I would never do, that you don't have to rejoice always, because that's just bogus. You can just be sober all the time and be creepy looking, Okay. <laughs> All right, so you don't have to be, you know, excited, whatever. And you'd go, Chris, that's wrong. The Bible teaches that. But I'm going to be the least, right? I'm, I'm not going to lose my salvation over that instruction. Are you with me on that if I really turn to Christ? But if I told you that when it says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and you say, I'm, we're rejecting that command, that, that you don't have to go through Jesus to get right with God, then that command would be devastating, would it not? That would mean that I'm actually not saved. So the least can mean your loss of reward, that you'll still make it even though you would be not teaching the whole truth. But sometimes it depends on what command you teach would depend that you might actually not be one of his children and be condemnable. Are you tracking with me? So it depends, least and great, on what you reject and what you accept. And so that's what he's teaching here. And he's basically trying to reaffirm the fact that Christians are different because they've been changed internally. And when you've been changed internally and given a new heart, and the dwelling Holy Spirit, you're given a heart that wants to obey Him. And when you want to obey Him, you will obey Him, correct? He's given you that heart. Now, you won't obey Him perfectly, amen, but you will want to even when you fail to. That's why we have passages like 1 John 2, 4. Look at it in your outline. The one who says, I have come to know him. I'm a Christian. I know Jesus. Yet he does not keep his commandments is a what? A liar. And the truth is not in him. So if that's the pattern of your life, you're not his child. Later in Matthew 13, again with the wheat and the tares, again, the least 
were those who were rejecting, and they were the false believers. He says in the wheat and the tares that there are true believers and false believers. And in Matthew 13, the least refers to those who were judged and cast out, and the great refer to those who are included and rewarded. So it can be either one, depending on the commandment that you reject. And you know what? Today is the same thing is happening. Would you agree that the enemy is moving people away from the Bible? Come on. Culture teaches no genders. It's just all a blend of mishmash, blah, 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 okay? And the Bible teaches what? Two genders, male and female, only two. I mean, the culture is teaching you all kinds of things about morality that are absolutely, horribly against God's word, and yet the Bible teaches very clearly what the truth is. And what we have today, even in Christian circles, is people distorting God's grace. We've had people here that have come to our church and saying, you guys are legalists. Why? Because you teach obedience. That obedience to the scripture is actually legalism. Listen, friends, that's not legalism. Legalism is adding extra to those 613 commandments and all that plethora of oral tradition, not the clear commands of scripture that a true Christian wants to follow. And, and you're not following it because you have to, but because you want to. Because you have a new heart that wants to. We're not distorting God's grace. There are people who say you distort obedience. You make it optional. You can obey, disobey. It doesn't matter. You're under grace. Listen, you get that kind of flippant, you might end up being someone who's really not born again. It could happen. Not that you ever had salvation in the first place. And he distorts the Bible's authority today. Uh, that, that you elevate your thinking, your feelings, your circumstances, your situation, your reasoning above his revelation. Listen, is the Bible your authority? Well, then we have to follow it. We can't follow business models in the church. We follow his leadership structure, biblical leadership structure. Uh, we, we can't follow psychology and man-centeredness. We need to follow doctrinal truth as we counsel people. We need to not affirm evolution, but stick with six literal days of creation. We need to re not reject male and female, but affirm male and female and the distinctiveness of their roles and the oneness they have in marriage. We need to not embrace homosexuality, but reject it as a sin because we follow the Scripture as our authority. We're not trying to tell you what we think. We're trying to tell you what God thinks. That's the authority. We desperately need our minds. Don't misunderstand. You need to reason. And you should actually apply your reason to studying the Bible. You've got to agonize and work it through. But if our reason and the Bible are in conflict, then our reason must bow to the Scripture. Amen? recognizing that your Father loves you, He's wise, He knows what's best, He's revealed His truth, and only the Bible can take you down the right direction, the best direction for your life. Number four. Number four, the power of Christ and His Word. The power. I didn't really see this verse in its context. Now listen to it, verse 20, it's incredible. But I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. There must be a visible shock, an audible gasp by the people there on the north side of the Sea of Galilee as they're listening to Jesus say this because the Pharisees and scribes were admired. They were respected. They were esteemed above everybody. Do you understand? I didn't understand this. 
to, if you wanted to be a scribe, a rabbi, okay, in the first century, you would start somewhere around age five. And you wouldn't graduate and be able called rabbi or a scribe until you were the age 40. That's how long they were in training and they had to embrace and memorize this massive oral tradition. They had to be familiar with whatever other rabbi ever said, ever. And they had to be able to quote that. People so respected the scribes, they'd stand when they walked by. Wouldn't that be awesome? And they would call them and greet them with the title Father, Rabbi, Master, what a head rush, and always give them the seat of honor. Shotgun, okay, was always theirs. The listeners are thinking as they're looking at verse 20, come on, maybe you're thinking the same thing. If their righteousness was not enough to get them into heaven, then the rest of us are in trouble. Talk about external righteousness. These people were impressive. They were living by all these rules and, you know, trying to really be uh, perfect. And, and that's exactly what Christ wants them to see. He wants them to be shocked by this statement. Because the scribes and Pharisees were seeking to gain righteousness through oral tradition. They were seeking to be right with God, not by the truth. It was external obedience. Inside, they were still rotten men. And they lived by softened demands of the law, not by the law itself, not by the truth of God's word. And it was all salvation by human achievement. They're going to earn their way to heaven. Christ expects your righteousness, look at verse 20, to be perfect. And that means imputed righteousness of Christ given to you if you submit to him in faith and repentance. And that alone is salvation by divine accomplishment. God makes you righteous. Just like Abraham, look at Genesis. It was the same in the Old Testament, same in the New Testament, Genesis 15, 6. Then he, Abraham, believed, circle that word, believed in the Lord. He believed. And God, what did he do? He reckoned it to him as what? He made him righteous so he could stand in the presence of a righteous God. You will not get to heaven unless you are perfectly righteous and no one here is. That is why you must submit to Christ by faith, you believe that he was God who became a man who died for your sin, took the punishment on your behalf, rose from the dead, and that he will then cover you with his sinless, perfect righteousness. When the Lord saves you, he indwells you. He changes your nature. He transforms your heart. So you're looking the same on the outside, but you're not the same. And not only do you live differently, but you want to even when you fail to. So again, one more time, Romans 6.17, what's he say? Thanks be to God that through, though you were slaves of sin, you became, what's the next phrase? Obedient from the heart. You have a new heart that wants to be obedient to that form of teaching to which you were committed. So now that made new person, as a born-again Christian, Paul can say, I'm going to challenge you now to live up to what he's made you to be. Romans 6.13, don't go on in presenting your members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, or present yourself to God as those alive from the dead, being born again, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Your everyday righteousness must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, stay with me. How must your righteousness exceed the scribes and the Pharisees? Two ways. Two ways. Number one. Number one. It can only be achieved through faith in Christ. Only. Christ being punished for your sin, Christ giving you his righteousness. Listen, friends, you know this. I'll say it again. It is the greatest deal in the universe. 
It's called double substitutionary atonement. Your sin, past, present, and future, all of it, what you're going to do today, tomorrow, and to the end of your life is then thrown on Jesus Christ. God pours all his wrath against God the Son on your behalf and kills it there with the death of his Son. And then Jesus, in his incredible love, then covers you with his perfect righteousness so now you can stand in the presence of a perfectly righteous God, not because of what you did, but because Christ covered you in his righteousness. The greatest deal in the universe. Substitutionary atonement, that's the good news. should make you smile. It should. All right? Look at Romans chapter 4, verse 5. This is, I love this verse. But to the one who does not work, you're not working your way to heaven, you're not like a religion trying to earn favor with God, you're not trying to be good enough so God accepts you, you don't do the work, you don't do any work, but you what? You, second phrase, believe in him who justifies who? The ungodly, that's me, that's you, by his faith and is credited as what? He makes you righteous. Isn't that an amazing verse? Second way, okay, that was first way, it's got to come through faith in Christ. Second way, because the Pharisees, now follow with me a thing here, they lived only by externals. They were rotten men trying to be conformed to the image of religion on the outside, but your faith has transformed you, given you a totally new nature, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, new born again heart, you're justified, you're regenerated, so now your heart wants to obey, therefore your lifestyle is going to be more righteous than theirs. Why? Because they're doing all this in their own strength, and guess what? That's not pleasing to God. That's not pleasing to Him. What's pleasing to Him is when He works through you to glorify Himself. Let me say it one more time. Write this down. Only God glorifies God. And the only time you glorify God is when God glorifies himself through you, by his spirit, right? You're in the spirit. If you're not in the spirit, you're in the flesh. Anything in the flesh doesn't please him, so only in the spirit. That means God, through his spirit, ministers through you. So anytime you're in the spirit and you do things for his glory, even though you're an imperfect being and you're a scuzz bucket sinner and you still see your motives and your heart and they're not all that they're supposed to be, but God works through you and he chooses to do so because he is a gracious God, then that's pleasing to him and you now exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. Isn't that amazing? Come on, a little shout of hallelujah maybe? Yeah, there you go. Let's have a revival. Listen, friends. God through you why you don't take credit for your good deeds because it's God through you that's why I'm nothing and you're nothing we're all nothing but God through me is something God through me and now as a recreated person you actually live a moral life superior to that of the Pharisees that's why he says for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven Jesus here in verse 20 he's not telling you how you get righteous, how it's gained, how it's developed, how it's empowered. He's not telling you how. I'm telling you how. Christ is simply laying out the demand. So how do you get it? Well, if you don't turn to Christ, you don't live by traditions and religion. And you, 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 If you don't turn to Christ, you live by traditions and you live by religion and you live by externalism, not in faith and repentance, then you will not be in God's kingdom and you will not be in heaven. But you do turn to Christ in faith and repentance that he creates, that gives you a heart that wants that, you'll experience the power of God's word transforming you 
into a new person who seeks to righteously live now and will live perfectly, righteously, forever under God's rule in heaven. It's all about Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the what? Gift of God. Do you earn it? No, he gives it. He crushes you and awakens you, and you turn to him because he gave you a new heart to faith and repentance, and you can respond to him. So let me wrap this up. Take this home really quickly here. Letter A, are you proud of your good works and your righteous life? That's one of the worst things that could happen to us today, isn't it? We walk out here going, oh, I'm so good. I'm just so godly. That's just amazing. You know, listen, friends. When you turn to Christ, you recognize then you're genuinely saved. You, you, you'll find yourself doing good works because that's what Christ is going to move through you. He's a servant. He's going to want you to serve. You're going to do that. But unlike the Pharisees, you're not going to take credit for him because you know that it's Christ through you. You know that it's, he's the one who enabled you to do this, and you know that as you continue to live for him, it's him working through you. So he gets all the glory, and we get all the blame. Are you ready? Can you accept that? Can you embrace that? Don't be proud of who you are and your service and your faithfulness. And I work with the two-year-olds. I've got to be super godly. I mean, because, you know, I mean, obviously that's a nightmare. <laughs> a nightmare. But Romans 3, 11.36 says, but to him be the glory forever, right? He gets the glory for that, not you. Letter B, Christ calls his children to live out an internal righteousness of the heart. The rest of Matthew 5 is going to unfold this for us. And after next week in the marriage conference weekend, we're going to take a look at this whole chapter week by week for six weeks, and we're going to see God do amazing things as he begins to address the internal issues of our heart. Jesus changes your inner man and inner woman. Amen? So much so that now you're not all like, I don't murder, I'm so godly. No, you're going to go, do I hate? Well, I haven't committed adultery, I'm so godly. You're going to go, wait. Do I lust in my heart? And instead of a, uh, you know, a seeking a divorce, you're going to seek to reconcile. And instead of oaths, you're going to go, my yes is my yes and my no is my no. Internally, he's going to strip away tradition at the people listening and he's going to drive them to truth of what real faith is all about. And not the behavior that we see, but the thinking, the motives, and even the feelings that he sees. Letter C. Keep the Bible relational, personal, and intimate with Christ. What am I saying by that? John 5, Jesus reminds us in verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. Listen, the point is this. The Bible is the path to relationship. Don't turn your community group. Don't turn sermons on Sunday. Don't turn your Bible studies, even your ministries, into academic duties. I got to get in so I can hear the sermon. Listen, we're here to worship him. We're here to lift him up, glorify him, exalt him, commune with him. Don't treat it that way. Treat it as an opportunity to commune and fellowship and pray and enjoy the Lord Jesus Christ. To escape this world and to worship him together for a moment. To be a little bit more heavenly minded. A low view of scripture is a low view of Christ. If you don't love the scripture, you don't love Christ. Depend on the spirit to follow the word of God to grow in Christ in order to bring him glory. Letter D, 
Lastly, and very simply, you know one of the funnest parts of parenting is feeding those kids when they can't feed themselves, right? You get that spoon. This is for guys because mom usually cleans up the mess, but you're just, you're turning in the spoon and you got to feed that kid, right? And stuff's splatting all over the place and they're spitting up and it's hysterical. I, my funnest times with my grandsons, just feeding them, you know, watching the, you know, it's just incredible, amazing. But guess what? Eventually they grow up and this is profound. They learn to what? Feed themselves. Christians, when you mature, you learn to feed yourself. So train yourself, would you? With trail, be a trailblazer. Pick a time. Listen, if you can have pickleball and a video game and a meal, then you can plan time with God, right? Right? And it doesn't have to be long. It could be five minutes, three minutes. Just quiet your heart. Get into the Word, read a paragraph, ask God to speak to you. It doesn't have to be a large amount of time. Retreat, find a place where it's relatively quiet. Sometimes you can tune people out with the headphones and be at a busy place. I, I don't, whatever, you know, every generation's different. Your goal is to have a private conversation with the God of the universe, to commune with Him, to talk with Him, to get into His presence. Sometimes we're so busy with our Christianity, we've left Jesus out. Get, get the right attitude, a spirit of expectancy, waiting for God to meet with you. Cease striving and know that he's God. Don't be thinking about what the next event is. Listen, I keep a piece of paper always when I'm having my time with God, and the piece of paper is there for the reason I get distracted. I write it down so I can get right back. So don't let anything distract me. I want to have the right attitude. Letter I, intentional have an objective. You're there to meet with Christ. This is not busy work. This is not a duty. This is not to get guilt off your back. It's to prepare you for the battles of the day. Prepare you to listen, commune, to gain wisdom, to pray, to get direction, to be empowered, to correct it, to direct it, and to worship. Are you ready? This is the God who gave you life and then gave you eternal life. And in Revelation 4 and 5, we will be praising Him for giving us life and praising him for giving us eternal life for all eternity. Praise him. And then number five, learn. Learn a method. And get trained. Have somebody give you a method. Just something that you can do regularly so you can learn. Listen, Keith Green sang a song. He sang many songs that had profound impact on my life. And the one phrase that I'll never forget is very simple. And I'll leave you with this one thought. Take the time to read because Jesus took the time to bleed. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. We pray that you would take your word and change our lives. Father, that you would cause us to become more of the men and women you want us to be. And Father, if there are any here who don't know you, we pray that you begin to draw them to yourself and start that process of showing them what it's like to truly be your child. And Father, we'll give you all the glory for what you'll do we love you. We're so grateful for you. We owe you everything. And we know that nothing that we do counts for anything unless it's you through us. And so we want that to be our worship today. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen.